When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. another episode of the good music podcast i'm lucas and i'm grant and if you are enjoying this podcast if you're enjoying what you listen to uh be sure to follow us on facebook and instagram at good music podcast you'll get updates on all of our new content and you can request your favorite artist and we just might cover them in the future but if you are very particular about your music and you really want to get the early access and the exclusive content for this podcast definitely go to the link in the description to our patreon page and you will be able to get early content and the exclusive bad music podcast where we talk about the worst songs of the artists that we're going over in that week and this episode is i wish it was under different circumstances but we are doing a volume two um, outside of the first of the month and so a volume two we've already been introduced to the artist in the first episode and now we're going to dive a little bit deeper so if you haven't listened to the first episode on this artist definitely go check them out and we have a particular focus that we want to put on this episode so i'm gonna hand it off to lucas what are we talking about this episode so as i'm sure a lot of you guys um are aware um a couple weeks ago unfortunately uh drummer joey jordison of slipknot passed away at the age of 46 at the time of this recording, it's we still don't know the cause of death, although it has been pretty well known that he has had some health issues. Um, it was said health issues that are reported to be the reason that he had left Slipknot in the first place. He had had um, some kind of a nerve disease that had made it to where he was not able to play drums anymore, and at one point had gotten to where he couldn't even walk that he had to be in a wheelchair wow but he had recovered from it and had been in a couple of other bands in the last few years so it was it had seemed at the time that it was behind him and who knows maybe something else happened but if i had to make an educated guess i i would say that it's probably something due to that condition returning so, I mean, yes, it's obviously very shocking that he passed away, but um, it's not like he was had a history of being in the best of health. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still very sad, way, way too young, and yeah. still had a lot of great music, I'm sure, to, to make. So yeah. it is definitely a big loss for the metal community and for the drumming community as well. Yeah, I, 
I feel bad because I didn't really, well, I guess this kind of goes into our first thoughts, but um, like my first thoughts, I didn't really know. And I'll get to Slipknot as a whole in a second, but I didn't really know his name until, you know, it was all over the metal news, you know, posts and everything that Joey Jordison, you know, founding drummer of Slipknot had died. And I, I'm so out of the loop as far as Slipknot that I didn't even know that he wasn't in the band anymore, you know, but all of these people were talking about how, oh my gosh, he's so influential, one of the most influential um, drummers of, you know, modern metal. And I, I didn't understand it because I don't really listen to Slipknot. I would honestly, before this episode, I would have put Slipknot at like a two or a three because the first time I heard them, I was on, um, I was watching Download 2015. And so Joey wouldn't have been on there. No, he uh, was out of the band at that point. He was out of the band at that point. But I remember, and I don't know if I remember seeing a parody afterwards and my brain just fit the two things together, but I remember um, Corey Taylor singing very clean. You know, obviously they played the first song on this set and I thought that was like the edgiest title that, you know, an eight-year-old could come up with. And then, you know, just slapped it onto a song with cookie cutter lyrics. And I didn't pay attention to the lyrics. That's just what my assumption was. And so, I don't know, I didn't, I, it never appealed to me. The masks were kind of off-putting. I wasn't really into that heavy of music at the time. And I was just like, oh, I get to Judas Priest. I want to watch them play, you know, <laughs> Living After Midnight again. Uh, or get to Kiss or Muse, you know. And um, from that point, I was kind of like, Slipknot is just a band full of posers. Like, that's, I didn't know that term yet, but that was kind of what I thought. And anytime I heard somebody talk about Slipknot, you know, I was just like, oh, man, I got to suffer through and be like, oh, yeah, Slipknot, they're great. And, you know, every time there would be a Loudwire post about Corey Taylor, you know, like brushing his teeth this morning, I was like, okay, like, you know, get some real news. I was that kind of, I was that kind of uh, person in relation to Slipknot. But going through the uh, songs from the first episode, I think the first episode was a really good introduction without going into the heavy stuff. That's why I say like, stressing you know this episode specifically definitely go listen to the first episode or you're not going to get anything out of this one um that served as a great stepping stone to the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode which is much heavier and much less accessible and i'll say that it was i definitely moved up we'll leave it at that okay how much we'll see yeah we'll we'll find out at the end of the episode so that's where I started. So how about you? Well, obviously, um, I am quite familiar with Slipknot even before doing this because uh, I had already done an episode on them and had pretty much listened to their entire discography because it's not that big yet. They only have uh, they have six official albums, seven if you count the, uh, the very first album, uh, Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat. And, um, you know, growing up, as I was getting into metal, when I was getting into metal, that was like when Slipknot was like really starting to get huge because I kind of started to get into metal like oh six oh seven, And um, I would say that that's probably when Slipknot was at their biggest. And um, I was just always told that they're a band for angry teenagers that hate their parents and just want to brood in a corner. Yeah. 
And I'm, I found this just of, of all the metal bands, they've kind of become the ones that have gotten the target put on their backs. The ones that have been gatekeeped the most or gatekept. I don't know what the past tense form yeah. of that was. Um, but they're the ones that the the elitist will say, don't listen to that. That's only for newbies. That's for people that are just getting into metal. You, When you get to a certain maturity level, it won't apply to you anymore. Mm-hmm. You should only listen to it when you're, when you're an angry youth and you'll grow out of it. And... I found really, and I never really listened to them during that time. I like, I only knew one Slipknot song. It was because it was one on the one of the Guitar Hero games, and I and I wasn't in love with it. I was just like, eh, this song's okay. Mm-hmm. And then about probably like five years ago, I just decided to like listen to them randomly because I was just it was that time period where I was really expanding my metal taste specifically when I finally developed an appreciation for harsh vocals Mm -hmm. I started that's it was about that time that I really got into death and um opeth and um system of a down although they don't have as much hard vocal harsh vocals but it was definitely heavier than a lot of the stuff I was listening to at that time Mm-hmm. Um and Slipknot, I I finally just started playing several of their songs, and I was just like, "Wow, I really like this." There's there's a lot of really cool stuff going on, and um, there was just there's like four or five songs in particular that I just really latched onto, and was just like, "This is I I would listen to this repeatedly." Specifically, uh, Duality really became one of my favorite songs of the last couple years that i had discovered that was a song that i played over and over and over again wow and it was just kind of like a wow i can't believe i've missed out on this band for so long so i became a pretty legitimate fan became even more of a fan because when we did the first slipknot episode it was kind of strategically timed because it was right when the we are not your kind album was about to come out yeah and so we had the advanced single of Unsainted, which I really liked. And so I was kind of like in that point when that record was getting promoted to come out that I was anticipating it. Mm-hmm. That I was just like, I was going, okay, I'm really excited to see this. I'm excited to see what the new masks look like. Like I was kind of like a legit fan at that point. So I would say like starting out, um, this episode, I would say that I'm at like a very solid eight. Um, wow. Like they're a band that I would, I would be a little scared to go see live just because it's a artist that when you're in the crowd, you know, that there's going to be a lot of moshing. Yeah. And I don't, I've done that one time and I feel like I got out of it pretty unscathed but you never know when you're in the pit like that yeah and there's you can't when you go to a slipknot show you're not going to just stand there and watch so right um but yeah like i i mean i had listened to a bunch of their records i had even starting to really get familiar with some deep cuts so yeah an eight i would say it was a strong eight <laughs> that's really high the, that's what i expected yeah, going into this episode. So, um, yeah, Slipknot has just really become the polarizing metal band. They kind of have replaced what Metallica was 
mm-hmm. in the nineties and early two thousands where it's like, it was kind of, it got to a point to where it was not cool to like Metallica anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Oh, they're sellouts. They're not really metal. Um, I get, and even like people would be like, even their old stuff's not that good. You know, you'd be better off listening to Megadeth or Slayer or Pantera. It's just like Metallica went because they became so big and because they had changed their sound so much that they became very um, uncool. And I feel like now the same thing has happened to Slipknot. Um, But I think that it's way less warranted than Metallica's was. Slipknot have not made the strange creative choices that Metallica has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, anything they've, they've stayed fairly consistent. They're they, definitely not as harsh and as angry as they used to be, but yeah, I mean, they're still pretty heavy. I mean, you were talking about in the first episode, how on their third or what they consider their third record, um, all hoop is gone. They started to add the anthemic um, clean vocal, well, that was, on a, the, that was on a that was on the the subliminal verses, which is the name of the third record. Oh, okay. Well, Although, but but all hope is gone was an even further step. That that goes to show you what I know, I guess, <laughs> um, about them. But yeah, and but even still, like we have one from that record, and it's still pretty like it's still <laughs> like it's still pretty heavy. You listen to the newest Slipknot stuff, and yeah, it's it's not as good as their older material. It's not as heavy, but like, it's still very recognizable as Slipknot yeah. where like, if you were to put, um, if you were to put master of puppets and load next to each other, you would be hard pressed besides the sound of Hetfield's voice that it's the same band. And yeah. even then his voice had changed so much. You put stuff from the first Slipknot record and we are not your kind together Yes, there's differences, but you can hear it and go, okay, that's the same band. Yeah. So, um, I just, I think it's the fact that they they really beat the system. The fact that they became so huge by such a strange gimmick with the masks. Yeah. With, that they became so huge on such angry and harsh lyrics and vocals and music. Out of Des Moines. Um, there's yeah, they're from yeah, they're they're from a place that's not normal for a man yeah. band to get super huge from, and it's just they they really broke all the rules, and I think there's a lot of bands that or a lot of people that maybe resent that. Um, but like I I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen people posting saying that Slipknot isn't even metal, and I and I don't know if they're just trolling. Or if they have some weird reason, but you definitely can't support that claim at all. I mean, you can rule them out of certain kinds of metal because there's obviously a very distinct lack of um, classification. Well, there, there's also there's a there's a distinct lack of. I would say that there isn't a the, set. The rhythmic side of metal is much more important than the melodic side. Uh huh. For them. And some people think that new metal isn't really metal and you put those things together and, you know. (laughs) But here's the thing, and I think this is another thing, and and this will be the last thing we'll talk about before we really start to get into Joey, which is the reason why we're here. Yeah. Um, 
I think the other thing that makes them so bizarre for people is that they don't fit neatly into a subgenre, which is very important for metalheads. You know, you could say, well, well, Black Sabbath is doom and Pantera is groove and, um, you know, Killswitch Engage is metalcore. It's, it's, if they fit into these neat boxes. Right. But Slipknot, like, it defies any kind of classification. They most often get put in the new metal category, but man, they are a thousand times faster and heavier than all the other new metal bands. I would they say don't... they still, still fit the template, though. The template yeah, but had a also higher volume the... and a faster speed. I would say they're just as much death metal as new metal. With, I... also, with also some a heavy amount of groove thrown in. And some black metal. Yeah, I mean, that was and, I mean, you've got you've got some thrash, you've got some industrial. I mean, I just I would say like if you had to pick two that maybe they fit the most, it would be new metal and death metal. Yeah. Um, but I don't even I just I don't think you can put them squarely in the same category as Corn or Limp Biscuit or Disturbed. I, I mean, mean, none of None of them are are playing these these strange um, atonal guitar riffs and blast beats on the drums. I would say that that's kind of what you get from having nine people in a band, uh-huh. and they they seem. I mean, even though in preparation for this and trying to figure out what happened to Joey, you know, I looked at some YouTube videos and whatever, and he would talk about how the band was very you know, at each other's throats a lot, but at the same yeah. time, they still were very collaborative and they were a band, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that when you have nine people working together and trying to make significant contributions to a single work, you know, you're going to get a lot of different things thrown in. Yeah, and, and I'm, they, I guess really that's the are, they really are a genre unto themselves. Yeah. So. There's just, they, they don't sound really like any genre. They just sound like Slipknot. In the same way that a band like Judas Priest defies classification. They're That's just true. priest. Iron Maiden. I mean, they they commonly get put in the new wave of British heavy metal, but that has less to do with a sound and more to do with a location and time period. Yeah. That's uh, um but like Iron Maiden like does not sound like anyone else or you can't you can't put them into any classification of of metal music. They're just it's just Maiden. They write in a way that only they sound like them. That's and, the way to go. And I, I believe Slipknot fits in that mold as well. They so. fit in the mold of no mold. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about Joey. Um, yeah. What you were saying earlier about people saying that he was one of the most influential drummers of the modern era, that is not an exaggeration. Okay. He, Few drummers, I would say, influenced drumming in the modern era more than Joey Jordison did. He was, he has inspired more kids to learn metal drums than even a lot of the old school metal drummers. I cannot tell you the number of young teenage drummers that I've come across when I ask them, who's your favorite drummer? And they always say it's Joey Jordison. Wow. I, I, 
taught for a year a kid at a at this music center that like Joey Jordison was pretty much god to him. Wow. And he just he brought this this wild, dangerous, chaotic sense. And it's not that he was the first one to do it, but he was really the first drummer to play like that to receive like worldwide recognition. As I believe uh, one of the Slipknot members, I can't remember which one, said said that he brought the blast beat to the mainstream. It does seem like he's got a whole lot of um, aggression that almost like he's doing the death metal scream through the drum set. Yes. You know, and he's trying to fit, you know, all of these really tight grooves in this very compressed space and competing with the other instruments it's kind of part of the slipknot sound but at the same time like one could argue that those drums are the mm-hmm. slipknot sound you could argue that besides the vocals that the drums are the lead instrument yeah i mean listen, because listen. everything else is very rhythm based i mean yeah. obviously you got two percussionists that are holding down a lot of the beat and it really frees joey up to to do a lot of fills and to get creative with his kick patterns and snare hits. Um, you've both of the guitar players again, because they're not as concentrated on lead lines. They're more playing just these really strong riffs and also riffs that really are not hummable or super memorable. Like the guitar usually never takes the center stage and going, Oh, what a great line every now and again, it does. Yeah. But that's never really the purpose that the guitars served in that band. And I think that's another thing that makes them very unique is that the guitars are rarely ever the lead instrument in any of their songs. Obviously the vocals always will be. Mm-hmm. It's rare for a band to have a vocalist and the vocalist not be a lead melodic or rhythmic compartment. Um, component mm-hmm. but yeah i mean if you look at all i mean the dj uh the the what sid wilson does in the background is very much not it's very in rare instances does it really push to the forefront uh, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of really huge keyboard moments um the bass is usually hanging out towards the back of the mix it really is the drums that provide most, along with Corey Taylor's vocals, that provide most of the lyrical expression. I, I will say that it's probably hard for people who are used to metal to listen to because we're used to that mold. Of mm-hmm. The virtuosic guitars and the real thrashy, um, fast riffs and the bass being almost melodic, you know? Yep. But... We were listening having, to one of our, we were listening to one of the artists that we're going to talk about in the future, you know, and they are, uh, they don't fit the template of their genre, mm-hmm. and so it was very hard for me to be like, this is kind of, like this doesn't fit, and yet, you know, it's not bad music. It's just weird to listen to. It's because it, something because you're it not bro- used to. It breaks the rules. Yeah. For and, as for as much as metal wants to claim that it doesn't conform to the rules of pop music it sometimes can be enslaved to its own set of rules yeah where it's you have to have a riff that is the centerpiece of the song 
you have to have you know this kind of vocalist depending on what genre you're in the drums have to play this way the bass has to play this way um and yeah slipknot really says f you to a lot of those uh set standards and just i i really do believe that joey was the biggest component yeah. in in really making all of their songs unique yeah, because he, when i think of these songs i con and it's not i don't think it's just because i'm a drummer but it's all the memorable moments or all the parts that the drums are doing i i think it's the very clever ways that he um not to name drop, but like to Vinnie Paul it up, you know, where where all of the drum hits are corresponding to, you know, a part of the riff, you know, mm -hmm. so it really it really nails it home. I mean, um, I think there's like the breakdown of our second song does really good at that, where it's it's very complex what he's doing and very, uh, very technical. And if you're going to have a drummer that's going to play almost lead, you're going to have to have a great great drummer but at the same time you can really headbang to it and almost feel it out it's not proggy and technical that way it's just very primal yes um i don't think it's going to surprise you at all to hear that uh one of his biggest influences was keith moon <laughs> oh no it doesn't not at all not at I've... all and honestly, this really wasn't planned because, again, we were not planning to do this episode. But I always, whenever, especially when I would talk to a lot of these younger drummers that I would teach, um, especially the ones that would say, oh, I love Joey Jordison. And I'd say, well, then you would love Keith Moon because the whole the whole reason George, Joey does everything, and I was just assuming this. And then I found out when I was doing the research that, yes, indeed, I was correct. My instincts were on point that – um he he really is just a heavy metal um keith moon mm -hmm. where he he plays very loose very uh aggressively a lot of fills usually never playing something the same way twice oh not at all <laughs> and he, and it always feels like it might be on the verge of falling off the rails the tempo is not something that's super important there's you can feel when the song is speeding up and slowing down, but yet it works and yeah. it helps because you have so many other members of the band that are fulfilling that role. Like if they didn't have two percussionists and two guitar players that are dedicated to playing very tight and very rhythmically, then Joey would probably have not have been able to get away with doing all the wild things that he does throughout these songs. Yeah. Wow. Good point. And um it was really I I had always wondered why it worked. And after doing our Who episode a couple weeks ago, it's kind of like the light bulb came out. I was just like, okay, I understand now. Right. It's it's almost like the uh Joey's playing over the rest of the band. Yes. Like that's they're, why, they're the rhythm section. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, and that's what I mean by his drums are a lead instrument. Yeah. I would say it's him, Joey and Corey are the lead um, instrumentalists of the band, mm -hmm. the vocals and the drums. Mm -hmm. 
And then everything else really is just serving to be either rhythm or filling extra space. Wow. So Loudwire would be just as obsessed with Joey. Oh, yes. If he was still uh, still in the band. And they, oh, they were obsessed with him even when he left the band. <laughs> well, I, left... I didn't follow him at that point. <laughs> yeah, he... Um... He left in like 2013, I believe. I think that's what uh, that's what you said in the first yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, okay, so because Joey is so closely tied to that the first really half of Slipknot's career, you can also say that this episode will really serve as a a magnifying glass on that. Uh, on those first four records, that first 10 years or so of Slipknot's career. And definitely their sound was already changing in the last years that Joey was with the band, but it definitely has a distinct sound from the more recent Slipknot uh, records. Mm -hmm. So you can really also say that this will kind of serve as a, a early years look at Slipknot's music. And I mean, Joey was part of it since the very beginning. He was one of the three founding members of the group. Who's that? Um, Sean Crayon, which is uh, also known as Clown, one of the percussionists. He's ah. the one that's always got the different clown masks. And Paul Gray, who's the original bassist, who was the one that unfortunately uh, died in 2010 from a drug overdose. Oh, wow. So really the rhythm section kind of yeah. what did it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they all of them were Iowa-based. And what was really confusing yet fascinating to examine as I was researching was that at some point, all nine members were in a band with a different member, sometimes more than one before Slipknot was ever formed. Like they all knew each other. Oh wow. By playing by either playing in different groups with each other or going and seeing them. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah, Corey Taylor said that because Corey Taylor was not the original vocalist for Slipknot. And he does not um sing on that um on that uh discontinued first record mate feed kill repeat um a different guy is singing on that one but he Corey said that he was at the very first ever slipknot show in the audience oh that's that's kind of surreal and said hey i'm gonna be the singer in that band someday well he was right and crazy enough, he was already in Stone Sour at that point, which is Corey's other huge band. Wow. So Stone Sour actually precedes his time in Slipknot. And so yeah. like and so and also in Stone Sour was guitarist Jim Root, who would eventually become one of the guitarists of the group and has been with them since the first record. And so they they've all they all had intermingled, but really that was the core three that started. They originally were called the Pale Ones, and it was actually Joey that came up with the idea that we should call ourselves Slipknot. Wow! So you can also credit Joey credit with that. 
with the name of the band. They had written a song called Slipknot, and he was the one that said, well, that's a really awesome name. Why don't we call ourselves that? Wow. That's kind of like a Megadeth scenario. Yeah. So he was he was very important in the in the initial creation. So you had you had um really it, it started off with Crayon first. It was his band. Mm-hmm. He's he's one of the guys that if he ever decided to leave, I don't see how Slipknot would continue. Because he's not just a percussionist. He's pretty much the one that's in charge of the entire aesthetic of Slipknot. It was Crayon's idea for everyone to wear masks, to wear the jumpsuits. He designs all the album covers. He's like, he's a very like photography, uh, big time photography nerd and like is, is very talented in graphic design. And so he's like pretty much the architect of Slipknot's look. So he's like the, he's the visionary. Yes, he is the vision of the band. Hmm. So even though, yes, he, you can kind of, an outsider would look at him and see him as unnecessary because he literally just plays percussion. Mm -hmm. But I would say that he might be the most vital member of the band. And he was, he was the ground zero. Paul Gray was who initially partnered with him. And then they both asked Joey to come in with the band. And so that kind of started as the initial three. Now they had a couple of other members that were playing guitar and doing vocals, but they were not uh, members that stayed for any long period of time. Hmm. So after that, that's when Craig Jones came in, who does all of the keyboards as well as all of the sampling. He's the one that, so they don't have a guy in the sound booth that's hitting all of like the, doing all the tracks. Yeah all of them so that's that's all being done live on stage by a member of the band that is kind of (laughs) cool so and because of that he has a lot of control like he can adjust the speeds of the track so they're not completely bound to having to play things so rigidly to the click and so because of the fact that he's a member of the band they have a lot more control on what they can do with tracks and of course he's playing all the keys as well oh he's doing both yes Oh, wow. Now, as you've, I'm sure, noticed, Keys is not a very huge part of Slipknot, so it's not like he's having, you know, play anything uh, John Lord complex. Yeah. But, so he he originally joined as a second guitar player, and then when they were doing the post-production of that first record, the again, I'm going to call it the demo. Because I don't want to okay. say mate, feed, kill, repeat every time. And I don't want to call it the first record because they don't consider it the first record. The demo. Because mm-hmm. that's what they view it as. It's very raw. I actually listened to it for the first time uh, earlier today. Oh, wow. I understand why they have never wanted to officially release it. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's just they... It's it's demo level. They They financed it themselves... They they made it very quickly. It does not sound great. The, a lot of the songs are very unfinished. In fact, a lot of the songs on it would appear in later official Slipknot albums. And one of them is one of the songs in our set. Nice. So there's promise, but you can tell it's a band that hasn't quite figured out what they are. 
where when you hit play on that first Slipknot record, there's no figuring out who we are. Like, that is one of the strongest debuts in metal history. They immediately had something that was completely different from everyone else and was already very fine-tuned. Um, so in the in the post-production for the demo, um, that's when he really started to show a talent to the rest of the band in his sampling. And so that's when they're like, why don't you just do that full-time? Because we need that. They They didn't want to fall into the trap of having really cool stuff on the records and not having a way to replicate them live. That is admirable. I will say that. So yeah, that's so Craig was the was the fourth and he and he's still with them. So he's these are all everyone I'm gonna list kind of through this little timeline are all of like the classic members, even though some of them are not in the band anymore. Mm-hmm. Um after that is when Corey Taylor joined. He joined right after the demo came out and their original singer, I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to pronounce his name, Anders. Colsedney? It's it's a strange last name. We'll just call him Anders. Um, he moved back to becoming the second percussionist, but then eventually decided, eh, I don't want to do this. If I'm not going to be the lead singer, I'm not going to be happy just being in a uh, in a very visual oriented part of the band. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, that's when Mick Thompson, who's one of the guitar players, comes in and rounds out. Because uh, that's when Craig Jones became the um, the sampler. They got Mick Thompson to take over his role on guitar, too. Mm-hmm. And then right before they made the first record, that's when Sid Wilson joined, who does the turntables and all the all the cool scratching and then also Chris Fain, who uh, replaced Anders whenever he decided he didn't want to be a percussionist. They had gone through a couple of others in between them, but then finally Chris Fain joined right before um, they made the first record. And then about halfway through making the first record, their other uh, guitar player left the band, and that's when Jim Root, who was Corey's fellow Stone Sour guitar player, decided to join. And wow. of all of those members, of all the nine, you obviously have Paul Gray and Joey, who are now um, passed on. And then Chris Fain, uh, one of the percussion players, he left a couple of years ago due to some uh, personal disagreements with the group. Wow. But so stayed pretty constant. Yeah. I'm, the first four records are all the same guys. No lineup changes. That is impressive. Especially for nine guys that were constantly attacking each other and constantly disagreeing, constantly having to go on hiatus because they couldn't agree. Um, it's And also nine people that were very assertive that their creative input was going to matter. Mm-hmm. It's it's really impressive that they got four albums out with the same guys. They They kind of did a Fleetwood Mac then. And that they're, uh, the fact that they're at each other's throats kind of ended up turning into some really great music. Yeah. <laughs> so really, they've, they've had 
more lineup changes in their second 10 years than they have in their first 10 years. That's kind of sad. Yeah. So, um, so do you think that that poses anything for their longevity? I don't know. I mean, they've, they've got some new guys that seem to be doing really well. One of the guys, the guy that replaced Chris Fain, we still don't even know who he is. We don't know who his real identity is. That's kind of cool. Um, we just we just call him Tortilla Man because his face looks like a burnt tortilla. Is his mask? And um, we have Jay Weinberg, who is Max Weinberg's son. If you remember him as Bruce Springsteen's longtime drummer. Wow. He is. He's been. Uh, on the drums for the last two records. And then uh, Alessandro Villanueva, I think I said it right, uh, has been playing bass for the last two records as well. Um, But which goes back to how we don't know who Tortilla Man's identity is. For the first three records, people had no idea who the people in Slipknot were. They didn't use their names, and they never appeared in public without their masks. Instead, okay. they were all they were all given numbers zero through eight. Oh, wow! And and Joey Jordison appropriately was was number one. Wow, <laughs> That's, that kind of works out. Yeah, you you would think that uh, Corey Taylor would take number one just because of well, his number zero. Well, he no, he was number eight. Oh, uh, Sid Wilson was number zero. Oh. I can't, I can't remember every number off the top of my head. I know Cran is number six, and Mick Thompson's number seven. So it's it's not order that they joined; it's just arbitrary. No, they they got to pick which number they wanted. Oh, like they kind of had a discussion. There's like because again, this was this was uh, Cran's idea of you know we want to be we don't want people to focus on us as personalities we want we want to be anonymous and we want people to just focus on the music my how times have changed yeah which really in a way it it kind of backfired but in a good way because the masks and the the personas that they have on stage have been a large part of their success Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, for for a long time, people had no idea. Like when you look on the on the album credits, it just says you know drums number one, percussion number six, vocals number eight. Mm. People didn't know, and I think that that's a really novel thing because it's like it's almost impossible to have anonymity in the modern world. It's amazing that we still don't know who Tortilla Man is. Shit. Yeah. They've done a really good job of keeping his identity a secret. For all we know, it could be you, Lucas. <laughs> it very well could be. <laughs> I might be Tortilla Man. Oh, uh, man. But, uh, yeah, so uh, Joey Jordison, number one. And he always will be number one. Wow. Um, his mask was... Um, started off as an original or just like a standard kabuki mask Mm -hmm. kind of just didn't have any paint or adornment on it It was just one of those bucket head yes it was in fact it was exactly a bucket head mask 
<laughs> because just that that type of mask is one that you can go find in any store. Right. Because that's how they made their first masks was they didn't make them. They just went out and bought some. <laughs> and then as they got bigger, they had the ability and the budget to design whatever mask they wanted. But that's how it started off. Like, because Crayon, his clown mask was one that he had had since he was 13. Oh, wow. And and then and so that's what he wore on that first album and in that first tour cycle. And then when the second one came around, he actually got to design his own mask. But like that's the reason why a lot of their masks kind of have that S and M look to them, where they've got the zippers over the mouths and it's leathers, just because like that's what they went to the store and found. <laughs> Name, of course, you know they would they would make small changes to them, but they didn't have the budget or really probably even the ambition to really make them super crazy and and intricate like they are now hmm. so and so yeah that's that's what uh joey's was in fact on the uh on the cover of the demo that's his mask that's lurking behind the the wall of machinery uh, he also got to be the first Slipknot member to appear on an album cover because he's uh, the only one on that album cover. Wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So I noticed that, like, at least partially on stage, I've seen pictures of him in, like, his full outfit um, on stage behind the drum set. And he's got these long finger things. Yeah. Does he like take those off? Yeah, he take he okay. just wears those as he's walking up to stage before the first song starts and then yeah, you'll you'll see him right before the first song starts, he like throws them off and gets his drumsticks. He does not drum with those. That'd be impossible. Well, I thought he was just like, you know, if they break, they break. I got another set for the next mm. show. You're probably also not realizing how long those were. Um they're really really long. Well, they could also like, be lightweight, you know, like know. several, like several feet long. Oh, I knew that. So. so, and then yeah, and then the the that would that was specifically on the uh, the all hope is gone cycle because so every album they changed masks. Right. Some people just did updates to their um, their normal mask, mm -hmm. while others did complete reinventions. Um, Corey, Crayon, and Sid are the three that would do something radically different every album. <laughs> even though, even though Crayon was always the clown, his clowns always looked wildly different. Yeah. Like he had the normal clown one, the first record, the second record, it's a clown mask, but it's got a pentagram carved into it. Um, the one after that, it's a uh, an S and M leather based one. Um, the next one, it's a as if uh, his entire face had been ripped off, so it's like bloody bandages with a red nose sticking out. And then the one he's got right now is just like a, like a robotic clown, where it's like black and silver with like a very dark red nose. I remember uh, um, when the uh we are not your kind came out and they announced the new um masks uh-huh everybody was making fun of the new um cory taylor one for 
obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, it's. I would say it's definitely one of his weaker ones. <laughs> I mean, well, I, it's also think about what he's following up, right? I mean, you've got some some pretty good good message going on, especially in the early years. I I my favorite of his was the all hope is gone one where it's kind of like that simple white one, but it's got the one dark eye and the one with the circle around it. Yeah. It's very simple yet. It was always very creepy, very effective, but everyone else in the group. Oh, and SIDS were always the most outrageous. SIDS masks are, are works of art and they don't have a theme to them it's just it's it's wild <laughs> he went i think he was a he was in a gas mask the first one the second one he was in a a, a screaming skeleton the third one he was a zombie the fourth one he was like a bug alien and okay. now and now he is a robed monk sorcerer <laughs> What? Wow. It's really bizarre. I don't but know how you put that into a mask. But I guess it's I'm real assuming. well honestly, it's it's pretty much just like a human mask. It's a human face that looks like kind of like an old guy and he like wears like wizard robes. Hmm. It's so weird, but it it's very I think it works very well. But yeah, every other band member, including Joey, pretty much just made updated versions of what they already do. Like Chris Fane, his always had the big long nose. It mm-hmm. was just, you know, it might be a different color. It might be, you know, have a little bit of extra detail on the face, but it was like you knew exactly what to expect. Craig Jones always has just the simple black um, full face mask with the giant nails sticking out. It's more he'll change just kind of maybe where the spikes are coming out, but it's like it's it's very consistent. Joey's kind of lied somewhere in the middle because his was always just kind of a a play on just that on that white kabuki face. Mm-hmm. But he would just add like a lot of different details and it just it got more intricate each tour cycle or album cycle. And it eventually led to that the one that I would say he's the most famous for, which is like it's it's all crusty and held together by stitches, and then it's got the crown of thorns sitting on top. Yeah, that's that's one I've seen a lot. And then there's another one that I saw that where it's basically just the kabuki mask, and then maybe like blood, but it's in like a design. And like it's, it's got the, it's got like the Jason mask or something. Yeah, the black spikes coming out of the eyes. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I I only remember images, but yeah, that I would say I would say the Crown of Thorns one is has become his most iconic look. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, he he really was one of the essential ingredients of the band. It's really astonishing that they were able to move on without him. And I think yeah. that's a, and I've never been able to pinpoint why Slipknot sounds so different now. Like, obviously, I knew that they had changed drummers, but I don't think before doing this episode that I realized how important Joey was to that 
part of their sound. Because Jay Weinberg, who's the drummer now, is very much the opposite of Joey. He's still good. He's very good. In fact, I would say up until recently, I've always preferred him. Mm -hmm. Because he's a lot more tight. He's a lot more groove-based. He does not add in a whole lot of extra stuff although he when he does it is mind-boggling the speed and the precision that he has but he's much more like he's very vinnie paul Mm -hmm. where it's just like it is it's almost machine-like yeah it's every hit is exactly the same he does not waver at all on tempo I mean, it's just, it is as precise as it gets. And I do love drummers that do that. Mm-hmm. But it has definitely um, changed the way that Slipknot even writes a lot of their songs. The guitar has picked up a lot of the um, muscle that Joey used to have. Mm-hmm. They have to hold up a lot more of the of the melodic side, which again is just so crazy to think that the guitars had to pick up melody from what the drums were doing. Yeah. But it's true. That's as, and that's another reason why a lot of their music has become a lot more melodic is because the guitars have had to fill that role now that they have a drummer that is not playing the way that Joey did. Hmm. So jo- Joey was was and always will be one of the, if not maybe the essential ingredient to what made Slipknot Slipknot. So I think that that will be a good place to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this segment. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about Slipknot, specifically talking about the late and great Joey Jordison, and now it's time to get into the six songs for this episode. Hopefully these songs serve as a great uh, mode of appreciation for the focus of this episode and the way that you can find these songs. There's a link in the description of every episode to a Spotify playlist with the songs from every episode. So hopefully you can find the songs for this episode definitely listen to them you might find something that you didn't know you liked and without further ado let's get into our first song which is off iowa and it is an explicit title i don't know how (laughs) i don't know how family friendly we want to keep this we're we're gonna we're gonna just call this song people all right we're gonna listen to people and then there's the other half of the equation if you're familiar with this song Yes, it's a little bit of math that you'll have to do. (laughs) Right away, you kind of, I mean, obviously I told you what I thought about this title when I first saw it, but right away, as soon as you hit play, things are into the highest gear they can be. Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to have any um, any preamble, any um, any kind of wading deeper into the pool starting off in the shower i mean it's just this is a immediate plunge into 
yeah. fast, heavy, brutal waters. Yeah, I mean, this this doesn't open the album. It looks like there's another song that kind of introduces well, it, I guess. It pretty much does. It's okay. it's a, it's a it's a one minute instrumental of Sid Wilson screaming the name of the song, but it's played backwards. Kind of creepy. See, oh, it's, it's one of the creepiest openings to an album I've ever heard. I because he the context of it was that he like his grandpa had just passed away, and so he's screaming it like while crying and in emotional grief. Hmm. See, I didn't get have the time to listen to Iowa. I really wanted to. But I did look at the songs and you know, it looks like there's like a 15-minute epic on there. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, it's def- it's by far the longest song I've ever they made. They can do epics too, I guess. Most of the time they don't. And it's but and they can't. And, and the title song is not going to be an epic in the way that you think. Oh, it's not going to be a multi-suite. It's it's still good, although I would say it's actually maybe one of the weaker songs on the album. Just because okay. I don't I don't feel like it should have been fifteen minutes long, but it's more of a an atmospheric slow burn song. Okay, but. It is definitely still worth listening to. That's how strong of a record Iowa is, is that the title track is one of the weaker songs on the album. It's still really good. <laughs> yeah. I just I feel like it probably shouldn't have been as long as it was. It I think if it had been like ten minutes, it would have been much better. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, this song, let's talk about the genesis of this song. You know, how'd it come about? What's the meaning behind it? So I mean I'm hopefully the the meaning of it is quite direct. Well, I they're, mean like they're they're spelling what, what's it out the relation quite, to real life, you know what I mean? Yeah, um when the band was making Iowa, that was by and far the darkest time the band went through except for probably when Paul had died. I would say that that was that was a hard time but it also kind of really brought them together. This was a point in the his- in their history because Iowa's the second record mm-hmm. and again I'm going to I'm going to only say this once and just know what I'm talking about when I say second record I do mean of the official releases mm-hmm. I'm not going to be counting the demo in this so forgive me if you think that I'm constantly leaving one out I'm not this is just for simplicity's sake Iowa's the second record and they were all in just really bad shape. Lots mm-hmm. of drugs, lots of alcohol, lots of issues depression. with their personal life. What I've heard, yeah, Iowa was a was a tough time for everybody. It was a tough time for them as individuals trying to work through not only all of the stuff that they've been dealing with for a lot of their lives, but all of a sudden now having tons of fame, tons of money because that first record exploded pretty quick off the bat. So they all of a sudden found themselves in a very, um, in a very famous spot to where now they had the ability to really go into overdrive on the self-destruct uh, path. Yeah. So they and Corey has has said that it was just like there was never a darker time in the band than when we were making Iowa. So 
that has translated into Iowa being their heaviest and darkest record. And that's really saying something because the first record is also one of the one of the darkest records I've ever listened to. And there's going to be some people that are just like, oh, that's this a little bit. But I mean, there's there's some really heavy stuff, not just musically, but lyrically. Yeah. And but Iowa definitely tops it. And the fact that the first proper song on the record is this is just really shows that right at the beginning, they're saying we are not messing around with this album. You're going to get a very representative taste of what you're going to experience for the next 50 minutes. Man. Oh man. That is the truth. And let me tell you, I mean, you were talking about in the first segment about how Joey doesn't like to play the same drum beat twice. This Mm -hmm. is definitely an example. I mean, I was going through um, the song just today, and I'm like, you know, every different part of the song, even when they go back to the verses, it kind of sounds a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, obviously, you know, it's sung a little bit different each time. But it's also drummed completely different. I mean, that verse that comes right after the first chorus has a completely different feel from the first two, which have different feel from each other. I mean, probably the only um, repeated part of the song is like the chorus. Yeah, and and kind of those little breakdowns that they would do. Right, the little black metal sounding um, breakdowns where there's the hits. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't stay in one place for very long at all. No. which Which is not a new metal idea. So I mean, there's some there's some ammo for that argument. Yeah, but yeah, to go back to the um, the inspiration for this song, Crayon has gone on record of saying that pretty much the song is just about how people suck, <laughs> and that right. that people, when left to their um, um, their own devices, their natural state is to kill, to destroy, to you know to annihilate and wreck the planet and each other. And it's kind of just like, we don't want to sugarcoat and say that people are good. He's just like, we don't, and he's just like clarifying. We don't think that everyone is bad, but he's just saying that like that that's human nature is that we are bad people and we have to make an effort to be good. We don't have to make an effort to be bad. And so it's, but I mean, obviously, there is a bit of a nihilism to it because that's the point that they were in at that time. Yeah. But that's also kind of their way of kind of coming to grips with still playing it because this is considered one of the all time great Slipknot songs. It's one of the few songs that when you go to a show that is like a guarantee is going to be in the set list. Mm-hmm. And it's usually always like the song that kicks off the encore. Man. Because I mean that's what a that's that's such an easy thing for people in a crowd to chant along to. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a giant stadium or festival crowd uh, chanting that chorus along? Yeah, that's got to be powerful. Wow. Yeah. There's also, and I'm sure as you noticed, there's not a a moment of melody vocally. Uh. Yeah. There are moments in this, and because it's Corey's style, where he'll do some that are 
clean spoken, but they're spoken and not sung. Mm-hmm. There's 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 really no melody anywhere in this whole song, not from the guitars. Again, like you can't really pick out the guitar riffs. You can't pick out um, any keys or bass. It's the lead instrument in this song, I believe, is the drums. And that's right. the reason why I wanted to start with this, is that we're immediately starting with what Joey really brought to this band. Right. And he does some insane stuff. That mid-song little drum section oh. is is one of his finest moments. Oh, yeah, where it's pretty much... It's pretty much just drums. It's a, you got nine it's people a drum in the solo. band. You got nine people in the band, and only one of them's playing. Well, yeah. the, the bass the bass is playing underneath them. Yeah. But like you said, the bass is kind of set back in the mix. Mm-hmm. But he is there technically. Okay. But the drums is absolutely right up front. Wow. Drums are up front the whole song. That's why this this song is such a great opener for this set is because it completely breaks the uh, the mold as far as metal mixing goes. And you have yep. to kind of rewire your brain to say, okay, I'm going to listen to what I hear. I'm going to listen to the drums. I'm not going to try to pick out guitar riffs. That why, that's why it was so frustrating for me to listen to this set the first time. You know? But as I listen through it again, I'm like, okay, I can kind of see that what the point is here. And the point is that, you know, amazing, amazing melodic drumming. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a hard thing to do. And it's, it's very rare. It was, it was again, as I was talking about in the who episode, it's so rare to have a band that has a drummer that can pull off this kind of drumming because it's not, determinant on the skill level of the drummer but there also has to be an understanding in the rest of the band that they're going to not take the spotlight and And yeah oh yeah and then just the sheer skill and speed that joey plays at he's got to do this kind of thing the whole night yeah it's it's really impressive to watch videos of him playing live because you know he he does a big old drum solo. He even has a trick to where the the drum riser uh, rises. Oh yeah, and and flips <laughs> and then, on the side and spins around and stuff. Yeah, and because and, yeah. and then the the part where his feet are the ground of the riser when it flips forward to face the audience, it lights up and there's a pentagram, which of course is super metal, and then it spins around. <laughs> Definitely took some influence from Tommy Lee in that aspect, but you know he's a much better drummer than Tommy Lee is. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's the, the way the cookie crumbles, you know? Well, he's a much better soloist than Tommy is. Yeah. I we'll mean, put it that way. It's, it's definitely a different uh, style of music. It requires a different level of technicality yes. that Motley Crue does not. Mm-hmm. Not to bash Motley Crue. I mean, both, both bands are good. Oh, no, I'm just... I'm, I mean, we. I I do feel like we could objectively say that Joey is a better and more skilled drummer than Tommy Lee is. Yeah, yeah. But Tommy Lee was the perfect drummer for Motley Crue. Right. Joey would not have been the right drummer for Motley Crue. And Joey is the perfect drummer for Slipknot. Yes, he was. So, yeah, this, this song 
I just I wanted to make a big bold statement. This is, and I feel, and I can kind of give this disclaimer for everyone that's listening. Um, viewer discretion or listening discretion is advised for this set. There's a lot of lot of language, a lot of really hard and and heavy subject matter and sounds. So um, if you're new to Slipknot, um, I would really recommend listening to the set from our first episode to kind of get acclimated because this is a set that if you're not used to listening to this kind of music, it's going to be almost overwhelming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make you uh, hate this kind of music. Yeah. Like, it's... I can understand, but why they got a lot of hate and controversy, but at the same time, that's exactly what they wanted. They did not want to become, you know, the, the stereotypical rock musicians that were trying to get their stuff on radio. And I mean, this, this, this song was very much, and and Iowa in general was very much a a almost reaction to the big success they got from the first record. And they're just like, okay, let's see if we can get bigger by making an even more unaccessible record. <laughs> so, speaking of their first record, let's move on to our second song. Unless you have anything else to say. No, no, I'm so good. So we're going back to the first record. They're self-titled with Eyeless. You can't see California without Marlon Brando's eyes. This is such uh, a cool line. I I did not think that's what he was saying. I know it took it took me actually seeing the lyric to understand finally what he was saying. But it's of the entire set. That's like the one thing that like has stuck in my brain the most. I'll I'll just be like at my job working and I'll just be like, can't see California with I'm on the red. It's, it's without any melody. That is such a great hook. I don't know if it can even be classified as a hook if it's not melodic, but it's definitely a rhythmic hook. So I guess this song kind of starts out with this weird ambient noise. And then there's almost sounds like a drum machine. Yes, that would be um, that would be courtesy of Craig Jones and his sampling. So was that Joey drumming, and then it was just sampled weirdly, or no? So they actually would pull moments from other um, songs. That's, oh, that's that's cool. That's what sampling is: is you're taking bits of things from other media and putting them in your song. In the okay. same way, in the same way that a rapper would have the beat or or melodic hook from another song playing while they freestyle and put their own words on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, think of ice, ice baby and having the, the under pressure baseline playing underneath it. Now that set a precedent because sampling was so new at the time that it had come out that they didn't know you had to get permission. <laughs> so I don't know where that drum beat comes from that he's sampling at the beginning, but it's, I would say it's like 95% likely that it's taken from something else. There's not that it defeats the point of sampling. If you're sampling yourself Hmm. at that point, you might as well just play it. Well, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) 
I don't know how it works. That's why I'm asking, you know. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much the whole role of a sampler is to take things that other people have done and recontextualize them when you put your own things on top of them. Okay. Um, but here we have another incredible Joey moment when he comes in with the drums at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. That's another kind of that has become like one of his iconic drumming parts is those and that huge fill mm-hmm. he does going into the into the beat. So when I was putting this head together, I was just like, I gotta make sure Eyeless is in there because that's that's one of that's one of his biggest moments. Mm-hmm. So um and man just just like the previous song, this song just is brutal from start to finish. Yeah, and this song, I I know we're going to focus on Joey, obviously, but this does showcase Corey Taylor as well. I mean, he yes, flips and, on a dime. And it is, a, and even though this is an episode about Joey, don't don't hesitate to okay bring up other members <laughs> that are doing some cool moments. We can talk about them as well, right? Um. Oh yeah, Corey is really phenomenal on this song because yeah he he's so effortlessly able to just switch vocal modes and it gives it just this extra layer of 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 darkness and it's very unsettling especially like when he goes into that right after that first chorus and he kind of goes into that low little mumble and then he just will instantly switch to a big old scream yeah yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Um so this song I believe so the whole kind of beginning point of this song is um I believe it was Corey Crayon and Fane uh were walking down the street and a homeless man kind of walked up to them and he was just repeating over and over again, you can't see California without Marlon Brando's eyes. And mm. was it was almost like a, like a mantra, like he was chanting it. And they're like, we don't know what that means. But it was, it was a meaning that stuck with us. And we were just like, we got to put that in a song somewhere. But in, even though they, I'm sure that they don't know what he meant by it, and therefore, we don't really know what this sentence means. The whole song is about going insane. And oh. so um, you could almost say that perhaps they were creating this man's story. about Because obviously, they, they're like, this man has some kind of mental instability, whether it's drugs or um, some kind of illness. But he was not right in the head and examining also a lot of the things in their own lives that perhaps could lead them to get to a certain uh, similar state of mania. And so that line of you can't see California without Marlon Brando's eyes is kind of like their connection to that man and Hmm. perhaps showing a similar path they could go down through. Wow. Wow. They they took the uh, took the really dark stuff with Pink Floyd and then made it personal. 
They didn't just talk about somebody else. They didn't mm -hmm. talk about somebody else who went insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing voices, but all they do is complain. How many times have you wanted to kill everything and everyone? Say you'll do it, but never will. And then that 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 refrain of "It's all in your head, it's all in your head" is speculated to maybe be them trying to see a therapist and mm. telling them that it's you know it's it's all in your head is but like eventually they turn it around at the very end that um, that line "Look me in my brand new eye." I believe that that's them embracing the insanity because that's been a, always a constant theme throughout their music is, is being okay with being broken and being against the norm. And that's part of their appeal. Yeah. They've always been the, uh, the band to the outsiders, to the outcasts. And they said that that's really always the thing that kept them together. Whenever they were at their worst with each other, it was always the thing that brought them back together was realizing that their fans needed them. Hmm. And so um, I think that it's, it's a, the song is a journey with accepting um, that, you know, maybe they are insane, but you know what, who cares? Mm -hmm. so now look at look at me in my brand new eye my insane eyes that's what i think it's about they've never come out and ex they've just explained where the origin of that line comes from so it's it's speculative but i believe that that's what it's trying to get across hmm i will say talking about great drum moments going back to that Oh, I think I know which one you're going to say. That great breakdown? At the very end? At the very end, where yes. Corey does the scream, and then they come in with the same riff, but it's slower, and uh -huh. it's like, oh. It's like, that's kind of where the post-Pantera metal era uh, yeah. that we're in kind of shows groove. But, man, that, that groove is tight and intense. Mm -hmm. I mean, every note from those guitars is mirrored in the drums, and there's these really fast, intense fills that don't detract from the overall just sludginess, muddiness, gross, nasty, but awesomeness of the breakdown. Like, mm -hmm. like if you want to talk about textbook, you know... Because you don't expect it to it. happen. You think no, that, that, really. that that scream is going to be the end of the song and then it just launches in and you're just like, Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. When that, when that came in first time I was listening, I was like, okay, that's pretty good. I maybe, maybe I should give this band a chance. That is really good. <laughs> <laughs> you can always get Grant with a good breakdown. Oh man. No, don't say that. Cause then everybody's going to send me metalcore stuff. <laughs> I said that on purpose. <laughs> Oh boy! I, I was doing. Uh, I also another favorite moment of mine is when he's doing those creep. The only melodic singing that he does in the song, where it's where he's singing very creep and and intentionally out of tune. Yeah, and he and Joey just goes to that those straight. I'm pretty sure he's playing thirty second notes. Oh, 
Oh yeah, and he's collecting. just he's just blasting away. Yeah, man, he, it's got it's got like a real um, nine inch nails from uh, Norwegian black metal feel to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of atmospheric. It's very, a very atmospheric moment. Very, very, but which you don't really um, uh, think about when you think of blast beats as being atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Which is that's that's the whole spine of black metal is you've got these blasting, intense double bass filled drumming uh, performances that create this almost hypnotizing soundscape. Wow. Well, there you go. Slipknot is black metal. <laughs> that's that's probably not something you should say too loud. <laughs> You'll get some people angry. Because the, the other thing that makes people more angry than Slipknot is black metal. <laughs> oh, man. By, by haters and purists. Oh, boy. I'm going to start a war. Don't worry. Eventually in our history of music, when we get to black metal, we'll make everyone angry. <laughs> Oh, as, we, as we plebes try and explain black metal because we're not true cult we're not true cult yeah I have more than four monthly listeners on Spotify so I can't be true cult I know you, you, need, you need at least three less uh yeah at least yeah <laughs> alright well with that we're gonna, we're gonna move to a much different sound yet Yet still, I feel within the vein of what we're trying to express in this. I didn't, I didn't want to just have brutal blasting early, early Slipknot stuff because I could have easily done a set that's just on the first two records. Yeah, but I was like, but I wanted to have something from his last two records, right? To to also show just with an increased uh, level of quality in the production and just also just a different a bit of a different mode of songwriting to show how he was still such an essential ingredient. So I picked Sulfur from All Hope Is Gone. Man, it's this... got it's got some some more melody than just the drums. Yeah, so this is this is going to be our first. And I guess really the only instance in our set where we're going to have a big catchy chorus, which is something that Slipknot has kind of become known for now. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this set will be a bit of a shock to people that only know Slipknot from songs like uh, Unsainted and Duality and Before I Forget, Psychosocial, all those songs. But this this song, I think, will be... And I mean, we... It's been so heavy up to this point. I didn't want to completely go to something ballady, but something that's a little less just in your face. In a way that this song is kind of a breather, even though it's still heavy by a lot of other people's comparisons. Yeah. And also, we still got some incredible drumming. The whole intro is dominated by Joey. Oh yeah, it's those same uh, guitar chords over and over again, but he's just <laughs> changing it up each time. You know, throwing in those blast beats and those hits. He's not; th- those actually aren't blast beats. 
See, just goes to show you what I know. I know. Blast beat would be like intro of people. That's oh, where the, the snare is doing the intensity. Yes. Uh, this would just be a... Um, he starts off just doing a normal groove, but he's got... Um, again, I, I think that it's 30 seconds, so... He's gonna count. Yeah, it's, it's thirty second notes. Yes, wow. I'm actually I'm actually applying a little bit of theory here, but it's just a normal beat because he's going da 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 da, and then the second half of it he switches to a double time D da 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 da, da but it's still the thirty second notes playing underneath. Bam. But I mean, it's an insane speed. Mm-hmm. It's it's a sets like this make me happy that we're not doing cover songs every week. Yeah, which one would we do? I don't know if I could have... I mean, Sulfur probably is the one I would have come closest to being physically able to do. Um, Mm. But it's those those moments where he's just blasting away on the double kick. I'm just like, I don't know if I could have done that. I couldn't have been able to make you sound that good. (laughs) On top of, there's no way I would have been able to sing like Corey, so... Oh my gosh! Yeah, I can I can do harsh vocals, but not in the register because he's more he's a mid range screamer. Mm-hmm. He's not like the the high squealy screamers like some death metal guys are, but he's also not low guttural like Opeth. I can do like Opeth style screams, mm-hmm. but I cannot do that to where it's more like a bark. Like a like a feral animal that's that's letting you know you're getting too close to its territory. We might have had to collaborate on the vocals for this one because I I can do the the barking. Oh well, so maybe no, maybe in the future. But maybe in the future we can come back to this. But I would say this song has the most uh, diverse moments. I mean, you've got some really intense atmospheric, you know. 32 second or 332 32 second 30 second note kick drumming and then there's some pretty good groove verses yeah melodic we kind of get a really for our first really memorable guitar riff yeah that first riff right but it doesn't it didn't seem like it was missing from the first two unless that's what you're really looking for you know if that's what kind of your brain is hardwired for then you're gonna miss it but you know, I mean, those first two songs were complete without the stuff we have here. And yet this mm-hmm. song still feels very much in the same vein of the first two because you essentially, you've got the same people playing. You've got the same drummer holding it all together. Yeah. So he, he's a, one thing you'll notice in the song, he's a lot tighter here. Yes. He's a lot more just really intentional about hitting everything in the right spot. Is this, this is the... Really the- is this the sobering up album? Yes. So to speak. Okay. Uh huh. That makes this sense. Is, this was kind of the first album that they all did where they weren't like just completely uh, screwed up on all kinds of substances. Um, it's de- I know for sure it was the first one Corey Taylor did sober. Mm-hmm. And also, just they, it was the first record that they. Bes- since the demo that they had recorded in Iowa, which I think ended up kind of being good for everyone's psyche mm-hmm. because they could go home when they were done recording. 
That's nice. And uh, it was also, this was an album where they really made it collaborative with all the other members to where they got to, in a much stronger way than before, got to really bring songwriting credits to a lot of the, to a lot of it. Good. So I would, I would, I would really say that this is actually one of their weaker albums, but the first half of this album, it's front loaded. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. First half of this record is, I mean, absolutely killer. And look, and then you got snuff at the very end of the record, which I think is worth getting through the record to get to. Um, which we put on our first episode. But like on the first half of that record, you've got uh, Gematria, The Killing Name, you've got Sulfur, you've got Psychosocial, you've got Ooh. Dead Memories. I mean, it's just when you hear all those right in a row, it's like you could be fooled into thinking this might be their best record. And then it really falls after that. In fact, we'll see a couple of those songs in our uh, worst music segment. Oh, that's sad. I know. But definitely does not carry the momentum that it's set. Hey, but even still, you know, having a good, strong run of five songs, very rare. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really solid first half of the record. And um, but yeah, so it's just the production is a lot more crisp. You can hear so much more detail and just again, you can tell that they're getting into a period of songwriting where melody is becoming more and more important. And um, so that definitely impacts the way that Joey is playing on this song. But he still does an incredible job. He's he he is much, definitely reverting to playing things a lot more similar through each pass where he's developing very specific rhythms that he's returning to but, but they're not cookie cutter no because he'll he'll throw in small little details but there's there is a level of predictability because True. again i think the fact that once you have a tighter production you can specifically hear the percussion a lot clearer here um you can hear what crayon and fen is doing a lot clearer so i think that that forces Joey to have to be a lot more mindful of making sure that he's locked in with what they're doing. Whereas in the first uh, two songs, you would probably be very um, hard pressed to discern all of the percussion parts because it all just kind of melds together into one big wall of sound that the drums sit on top of. <laughs> yeah. Here, on Sulfur, it's much less wall of sound. You can you can ha have a much easier time discerning what all nine members are doing throughout the song. Hmm. And so I do think that that forces Joey to have to play differently. But I don't think that it's worse. He, he still he still doesn't a brilliant job on the drums here. It's still very so melodic. It's still very lead instrument worthy. Like what he plays on the chorus with those tom fills, oh, and man. and his tom sounds so good. Yes, whoever, whoever mic'd those and and mixed them did a superb job. Yes, man. 
So, so have we talked about the meaning of the song yet? No, we have not. Let's do that. Um, this song was written by Corey, and he had s- stated that when he had written the song, like I said, he uh, was for the first time uh, kind of coming out of addiction and depression. And this song is about him kind of coming to terms with who he is, kind of like how we were talking about an eyeless where it's about accepting yourself as you are. Mm-hmm. My guilt and my shame always sell me short, always feel the same. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, looking back on his life and kind of looking at all of the all of the bad decisions that he's made and mm-hmm. it overwhelms him at times mm-hmm. and how just he has to tr- figure out a way to move past it and to accept that part of himself to live by his own standards and not the standards that other people have put upon him but that he's always going to have this battle of seeing all of the stuff that he's done in his life and not letting the regret of it consume him. That's, that's the, that's the sulfur that lives inside of him that could choke him at any moment. Hmm. That is, that is, that is kind of layered, not too layered. Yeah. It's kind of layered. All my decisions make it untouchable and tainted. I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life, but I will always find a way to survive. I'm not a failure, but I know what it's like. I can take it or leave it or die. I feel like that sums it up pretty, it is uh, pretty good. nicely. So this this whole record, and he had pointed to Sulphur in particular, was kind of like his therapy of really coming to terms with who he was and who he is and learning to love himself so that way he can s- succeed moving forward. So this this was kind of a transition record, I guess. Maybe not in sound, but in the uh, philosophy of the band. Yes, I believe so. And who knows what kind of record we would have gotten had Paul Gray not passed away. Because it very much goes right back into darkness after. Because the, that next record, the Gray chapter, is all about mourning the loss of Paul. Hmm. And, and that was that was Joey's last. No, Joey. Or no, also, this was Joey's last. No, uh, so all hope was gone was both Paul and Joey's last record. Okay, but Joey didn't leave until, um, because Gray Chapter came out in 2014 and he left in 2013. Right. So he didn't. He left like shortly before they would have started recording that record. So did he did he write any songs? No. No, he didn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're kind of one of those where they go into the studio and then write. Uh, yeah, because Corey, Corey's the main lyricist, although he's not the only one. He's the main one. He typically said that he wouldn't write lyrics until he heard what the music under it was going to be. That's kind of smart. Because then you can end up uh, uh, with a better union between the two. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, obviously, whatever whatever they're doing works because they are, you know, they're carrying the torch of the biggest metal band, you know, right now. Yeah. So, man, 
well, we've been talking for 40 minutes for the first three songs. <laughs> so let's let's go back to Iowa now. Yes. And we're going to a song that you referenced in the first episode. And this Really? Is, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, it I mean, it's been very briefly. It's been two briefly. years since I've... Since I've <laughs> recorded it talking about the uh talking about the chorus of this song and how it was kind of a slap in the face of the people who told them that they couldn't make it so this is the heretic anthem eight seven six 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 five four three two one zero well i thought he said go no, because what he's doing is he's count. Because the, there's a reason why he starts at eight. It's because it's the numbers of Slipknot are zero to eight. Wait, so then who's six? Uh, Cran is. Oh yeah, but of course he, because of the theme of the song, he stops and does the six six six. Yeah, right. But yeah, that's. I would say there is, uh, probably not a more iconic slipknot line than if you're five 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 I'm six six six. I don't know. I mean there's some pretty iconic ones out there. Yeah that even I've heard of having not liked slipknot at all. I guess I guess there's there's gonna be ones that are iconic to non slipknot you listeners, but to the slipknot fan base. This is it. That's like, yeah, that's that's one of the Slipknot calling cards. But man, once again, back to the heaviness, back to the intensity, the the primal rage. Yeah. And I mean, some of the most brutal and fast drumming. Gosh, yeah. Because it's not just for sections that he's playing those again I'm, I'm pretty sure they're 30 second notes i mean he is playing it for i would say over 50 percent of the song is just that and it's just like i don't know how he's got the speed and stamina and this is one of their live favorites so he had to play this song a lot oh man this was not a deep cut that like this wasn't a dyer's eve where they didn't play it for 25 years. So do you think that contributed to what happened with his uh, loss of no usage? Okay. I don't believe so because um, lots of other oh, – I won't say lots of others, but I would say this speed of playing is normal for for death metal. Definitely Dave Lombardo has played at speeds like this for most of Slayer's career, and he's still going strong. Okay. So I, I, I don't think that, because that affected his whole body. Uh, and it was it was, it was was a um, neurological issue, not a, like, because of wear and tear. Okay. I think so... it, was, it was probably like a genetic thing. Okay. Okay, that makes sense then. But man, you wouldn't, I'm sure you wouldn't blame him for, you know, his body coming <laughs> out after. A, yeah, no, not over at and over all. Again. This, this is one of the ones I think it's, as far as just sheer ability, this might be his most impressive song. Really? I mean, and um, in the terms of just sheer speed and endurance. 
there's other songs where he's he's doing a lot more like complex things where it's it's a it's tougher in the sense of the coordination of it but as far as just like raw power it's hard i think to find anything in their discography that's as pummeling and as brutal as the heretic anthem yeah man and once again we have some of those sections where it doesn't perfectly repeat mm-hmm. each each verse is a little bit different i mean that uh you have that section kind of in the middle where he's you know going super hard on the kick drum the 32 second notes again and um that guitar line that you can barely hear but it ends in some weird harmonics they go back into the verse and that that riff that comes right after that where it kind of like plays a little bit and it stops and then it plays a little bit and stops and the drums mirror that there's like the like joey could have done you know fills between there but I don't want to use the term musical responsibility because that's what we talked about during Hall and Oates. But I mean, he, he had the, I mean, that's what it is. You know, he had the, um, I should say, yeah, musical responsibility to leave that the way it is and let that riff be the power behind the rhythm yeah. of that section. What you don't play is as important as what you do play. Right. Right. And that's crazy to say for a song like this where he's pretty much on, you know, 99% of the time. But man, is that the truth? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, this song really just encapsulates what the band is all about. Because this song, this despite the 666 imagery, it's actually not a religious song. The whole point of the song is rejecting the mainstream and and giving a big middle finger to the label executives that tried to push them to be more commercial. <laughs> they had said that when they um, before they had signed to Roadrunner Records, which Roadrunner has become like a synonymous like big time heavy metal record label. Yeah, Slipknot was the one that gave them their first number one record. Or no, it was their first their first platinum record. Wow. And the debut record in ninety nine. Mm-hmm. So like Slipknot put Roadrunner on the map. And that's kind of crazy because that's like when you th- ask people to name a metal record label, that's like one of the first ones people are gonna mention. Mm-hmm. So um but before they had got signed by Roadrunner, they were going to be approached by Sony, which is a much more diverse because Roadrunner was kind of more specializing in metal. But Sony, of course, is going to be a much more diverse. They're going to have a little bit of everything. And so they were going to play a showcase in Vegas and one of the Sony guys was supposed to come and kind of see them and decide what on that performance, whether or not they want to sign them. And they said that after the performance, that guy ran out of the club, went to the executives and said, whatever you do, do not sign this band. If they are the future of music, I don't want to be alive. 
Oh, man. And Corey had said that he's just like, whenever our first record went platinum, they sent that guy a bouquet of dead flowers and said, sorry, but we're the future of music. (laughs) Oh, that is poetic. But even on uh, Roadrunner, uh, one of the label executives, when they were making Iowa, because of the fact that that first record had gotten so big, had approached them and said, we don't, we need a song on here that we can play on radio so that we, we can get you guys even more famous. And that was the moment when Corey got the inspiration to write the heretic anthem to say no. Yes. Because <laughs> he didn't even, even in that, cause still at the beginning of the two thousands, metal was still a commercial a commercial via a commercially viable i was trying to figure out the way to say that commercially viable uh genre i would say that that was kind of like the last time period when metal was like in the mainstream Mm -hmm. and you could still like maybe not on pop radio but definitely on rock radio you you know metal was all over the place you know it's House bands like System of a Down and Tool and all of them were able to have these huge crossover records in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Slipknot had the the exposure and the um, the notoriety at that time to be able, if they were to put a big commercial single out, it probably could have been huge. And so it was not out of the uh, realm of possibility in a label executive's mind to say, oh, we need to get them on radio so we can make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to write a song talking about how much we're not going to do that. (laughs) Man, just yeah. because you told us to do it, that's going to make us do the exact opposite. If you're five five five, then I'm six six six. I will never conform to what you want me to be and what you want me to do. We're going to be heretics. That's awesome. Yeah, I I love it when bands have those moments that they don't give in to the pressures of what the music industry demands of them and they do things their own way and as a result they actually win in the end they become bigger by doing things their own way that's the way to do it kids Mm -hmm. follow your dreams don't let the record executive tell you to write a pop song (laughs) yes so let's move on to the next one Man, we should we shall gently waltz over to the next one. <laughs> so is this, is this right on the uh, next on the album? Um, actually, I think it is opposite, and I can double oh. check that. So yeah, I guess you can just click on the little deal on Spotify. Yeah, um, that's, that's oh the no, break. it is actually right after. Oh, it is okay. Huh. Well, there you go. I knew so, it was one or the other. It's it's your uh, coincidental intuition back at it again. Yeah, because I had I had um, 
I had wanted to uh, do this originally, and then after I listened to it, I was just like, oh, yeah, there's a reason my brain thought to do this. <laughs> so anyway, this is Gently, and we, we're still very heavy, but we're not the speed kind of heavy anymore. No, and this is, this is a deliberate turn that's going to last us through the rest of the set. Where right. we start to really get atmospheric. And with Joey in particular, just showing that he was really able to toe the line so well in atmospheric drums and tribal drumming. Very, very just rhythm and beat oriented. Where mm -hmm. you've got these, it's almost like anti-worship drumming. <laughs> Oh it's man, a, it's a lot of toms, a lot of hits on the cymbals. Yeah, and it's all in the surface or in the service of building the tension. Right, it's it's um, painting a picture rather than shoving a freight train in your face. Yes, both of which can be really powerful, you know, especially in in metal like this. But it's very interesting to find a band and especially like a group of musicians that can together create both kinds on the same record. Mm-hmm. So. so remember how I said that there was a, a song on the set that was originally on the demo? I, I guess that it was this one. Really? What made mm -hmm. you think that? Well, because it sounds distinct from what you'd picture Slipknot to be. Okay, I, mean, I, I can see that. That kind of that kind of wah sound guitar in the beginning, that little lead line, it sounds like somebody was like, ooh, this sounds cool. We should turn this into a song sometime, you know, which it's, I don't know. I just felt like that was something that maybe one of the guitarists came up with. And then it never got fully fleshed out until they had more of a uh, musical maturity to take it where it needed to go. Well, I will say that neither of the guitarists were in the group when this was originally <laughs> recorded. So maybe, maybe it was, it just needed some cross pollination, I guess. Yeah, the main and the main reason I wanted to take a listen to "Mate Feed Kill Repeat" was so that I could hear this version of the song and kind of see how similar it was it is quite different this almost sounds like something off of uh, like uh, like a far beyond driven or great southern trend kill yeah with the with the brooding nature of it uh-huh you've got like the you've got the really distorted like heavy breathing in the background yeah, yeah. I I didn't put the pieces together, but it definitely sounds something that could be on uh, Southern Trend Kill. Yeah, like the first time I listened to it, I'm like, that is, that is dime. <laughs> and not to detract from you know the musicians in this band, like they're ripping off Pantera or anything. It's just trying to pit the, pit the pieces together, fit the pieces together. <laughs> uh. But yeah, it's it's this this song is is much darker, and I it definitely they did a good job of updating it to fit the mood of Iowa. 
Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, it's, it's a, in the album itself, it is a much needed reprieve from the onslaught of heaviness. Mm-hmm. Because it, this comes at about the halfway point of the record. Okay. And then you don't really get another break until the long uh, atmospheric nightmare of the title track at the end of the record. Wait, so what did it sound like on the demo? It was a lot more melodic. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have much melody. <laughs> um, it's like the, the opening guitar part is like, it's almost uh, like fade to black-like. Hmm. Where it's just, it's 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 a legitimate melodic line. And I remember hearing, I was just like, this is really strange to hear, but I, I like it. It's just, it doesn't sound like Slipknot. So at the very least, it is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Will... I think they're, they're almost like two completely different songs. Obviously, you can hear the structure in it. Like it's, you know, both sections go to that that left turn kind of just ramp up towards the end. Um, they both have mostly the same lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. Corey Taylor just made small little changes between versions, but um, the biggest change is obviously just adding in that that Iowa darkness to it. I will say that it it kind of creeps up on you how intense it gets. Uh-huh. There's never kind of that uh that moment that you think of in like thrash metal for example where it's like okay now the song has ramped up and we're into like the main riff or maybe you know that machine gun part in one where it's like oh now we're gonna get to the fast section yeah or yeah in the metallica ones there was always a moment when you knew that right you've just crossed it's it's very much uh cooking cooking the frog legs kind of song yes it's very it's very natural and then the song is over and you're like oh my gosh that was really heavy but you think back to the beginning of the song and no like it was it was kind of slow and and ominous and you're like holy crap that was like five minutes yeah five minutes to completely change change the vibe and joey of course had to be on on point with what the rest of the band was trying to do, where they're trying to go. Yes, he's near that. He definitely is responsible for having to lead the song because, mm-hmm. especially, and it's just like that with worship drums as well. That's why I, I think it's an apt comparison. The drums will always dictate how the rest of the band is going to go with a song like this. You know, you you could theoretically improvise how long you're going to stay in sections as you just have to make sure that the drums are going to be signaling the changes Mm -hmm. you know when he goes down the band goes down when he starts getting more intense the rest of the band is going to get more intense it's less to do about we play for this many repetitions and then this guitar line plays this it's really all about feeling the mood and the drums are going to be what first and foremost sets that mood and so it takes a very um intuitive touch yeah and joey had that in spades (laughs) yeah 
He wow. knew he knew when to push it and he knew when to call it back. Yeah. And man, when he pushes it, it's on. Yes. That's that's his uh that's his strong point is to really bring on the the harsh just unrelenting drumming that that is towards the end of this song. Yeah. But yeah, this this song this song is definitely a mood setter for our final song. Well, we probably need to talk about uh, the meaning. Oh yeah, already. Um, this song is about escaping to a a world inside your mind, it's probably through the uh, aid of drugs, and just about a desire to live in this this imaginary world where you're free from all of the crap that's in your real life but then realizing that the the sadness and the the darkness of it is understanding that it's not real and that you can't stay there and the depression that comes with it of constantly wanting to get back to that place of bliss but always being dragged back into the real world. That's kind of sad. Yeah. Kind of dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely the point. <laughs> All right. But, so anyway, not to cut you off. Oh, no. No pun intended. I, I forgot that I hadn't gone over that part yet. No pun intended not to cut you off. Uh, but here we go into our final song off of the self-titled first record, Scissors scissors this is probably the the most intense song we've had on the podcast to this lyrically yes and just performance wise as well i would say more so than any mashuga song or opeth song this is this is a song that man you're getting towards the end of it and it's 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 and I don't I'm not saying this because it's a bad song, but it's hard to get through because it really affects you mo- emotionally. It is. Yeah, it, there's in a weird way, like usually this is kind of a metric of a bad song is like thinking, oh, man, when is this song going to end? But you think that at least I did while listening to it, you think, man, when is this song going to end? But you don't want to turn it off. Right. Because it's like. It's roped you in. Uh-huh. It's and you're just it has you're this, stuck with it. It has this weird pull on you. Yeah. To where you want to stop listening to it because it's so much, but at the same time you're fascinated to see how far they're really gonna take it. Yeah. Yeah. So and I I only picked up bits and pieces of the lyrics, but they already sound kinda intense. So this this is a very unique song. So first off and again, I didn't plan this, but man, it sure works out this way. This was one of the few songs that was written by Joey. Oh, nice. But, but only the first half. Oh. The first half is the only part of the song that's scripted. The rest of the song is actually improved on the spot by Corey. That's awesome. So I believe it's all the way up through the... Uh, through the biding my time until the time is right. And at that point, that's when the written part of scissors ends. 
And that's when Corey goes in. And I mean, you can feel that there's a structure up to that point where you can feel that there's like specific parts. But then like the second half of the song is all improvised and they would improvise it when they were playing it live as well. That's cool. Corey has said that this is his favorite song that they ever wrote. Because it's different every time. Yeah, because he was just like, it was always so exciting when we played it live because you didn't know what was going to happen. And there was a period of time where we took it away from the set and he said that he was kind of depressed because he like looked forward to that moment every night. Hmm. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like it's pretty easy to discern that the song is about self-harm. Mm-hmm. That's where that's where the scissors come from. And um, you have this uh, really disturbing opening line. I play doctor for five minutes flat before I cut my heart open and let the air out. Mm-hmm. That is kind of uh, weird. <laughs> a, a very, a very, um, a very poetic unsettling. way. and it's just like it's not it doesn't have the feeling of like just like your typical emo you know I'm I'm gonna cut myself for attention like it definitely almost goes into like that nine inch nails yeah feeling of just like it's like you're you're watching or imagining like some kind of like demented like someone that's like self mutilating Mm mm-hmm and I mean, it's just, it's very, this, this song is just so heavy in emotion and atmosphere. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost tangible. And then the whole second half where Corey is improvising, it's, it's assumed that he's speaking from his experiences through drug abuse and kind of like, really connecting to that lowness that he felt at that time. Cause there's, there's certain parts where like you can hear him like sobbing. Yeah. Because he's so like in the moment emotionally. And those, those times where he, they're doing those hits and like, he like can't hold it together. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's so it's kind of terrifying because it's just again it kind of it it unlocks this extra level of almost psychosis yeah where you you really don't know what he's going to do mm-hmm. and and then that moment where he's just where he's screaming um I want to die I'd rather die and the drums are just going absolutely insane yeah i mean it's just it is i can't i really can't describe the emotion that it puts you through Mm -hmm. it's 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 fascination it's dread it's a little bit of horror sadness Mm -hmm. because i mean it's it's one of the most raw displays of emotion i've ever heard in a song 
and, and like, it's a very dark emotion too. It's not just oh raw, yeah, like I'm gonna tell you exactly how I feel, but I am going to explicitly tell you exactly what I'm thinking mm-hmm. in a very horrific way. Yeah, it certainly is a climax to all this dark emotion that builds up throughout the set. Yeah. You want to talk about a catharsis moment. That whole, the whole last, I would say, two minutes of this song is one of the most intense catharsis we've ever put together in a set. Intense is the right word. Needless to say. Wow. But just like with all the other songs, the drumming is superb in the song. Especially like I said earlier, that moment where he's just screaming, you've got like almost like a 45 second long drum solo on top of it. Pretty much. Yeah. And it it really does the gently um, thing where it will gradually slope up in intensity. It well it kinda it kinda does a rolling hill kind of thing this song. It's not exactly linear, but it there is no one moment where it's like, okay, we're heavy now. You know, uh-huh. it really creeps up on you again. And man, to be able to get intense and then to go more intense than that and to keep upping the ante on yourself like that is crazy it's mind-boggling it's impressive what he's able to do technically and it's impressive what he's able to do from a um emotional standpoint from behind the drums Mm -hmm. but man i mean yeah you you get to the end of this and and by the way that that is uh that's a at the very end that's uh, a soundbite of Chris. That that very last sound that you hear in the song. Oh, so, I thought that was uh, that was just reverb from Corey. No, that was uh, that was a uh, an audio clip from a from a different session where they recorded him throwing up. <laughs> oh. Gross. Now, this song is what traditionally ends the record, but mm-hmm. as just about every hard rock and heavy metal album did in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's really, it ends and then there's like eight minutes of silence before a hidden track comes on. Okay. And that's where the, if you look on the track listing, that's where Eeyore comes in. Okay. So Eeyore is like technically the last song of the album, but it's because it's a hidden track. I am unfamiliar with the song. Um, it's it's pretty cool. It's like it's like a it's like a minute forty five of just like pure thrashing. That's nice, but it's still really dark. That's also in the, nice in the way that's the the whole song is about. Um, a guy that got too enthusiastic moshing. It would constantly beat people up. Hmm. And so the crowd decided to beat him up one day. Well, get what you deserve, guy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, it, it ends with a sampling of of Ice Cube saying, "Take that, mother," <laughs> and that's the way the album ends. That's <laughs> kind of cool. But for a lot of people that didn't know that hidden track was there, this was the way that that album ended. That's dark. Well, and then imagine like you have you have this song, you know, on, and then you listen to it and you're like, wow, that's so dark. So you just sit in silence for eight minutes and then all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. that probably scared the crap out of some people. Yeah, I'm sure. Which might have been the goal. Yeah. That's that's what a lot of reason why a lot of people did that. But that's our set. That is our set. It's it is a set and we'll talk about our feelings about it in our next segment. So <laughs> when we come back, we're gonna give our final thoughts about Slipknot and about Joey Jordison as a drummer. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about our uh, six-song set for Slipknot in honor of the late Joey Jordison. Just as a reminder, those songs were People, um, Eyeless, Sulphur, The Heretic Anthem, Gently, and Scissors. So now it's time to talk about our final thoughts about Slipknot and about Joey Jordison. So, Grant, we'll start with you. You started off quite low. Did you did you ever uh, decide on if it was a two or a three? I, I honestly, I don't know which one. I don't know if I necessarily hated them so much that I'd put them in a two, but I can't justify putting them in a three because I also just I got annoyed every time they were mentioned. So I guess I'd have to put them in a two because I don't necessarily, I, I, I should say, I didn't necessarily completely want to wipe them off of the face of the earth. So I can't put them in a one, you know, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess I say they, they would have to have gone in a two. That would you know? probably be the lowest yeah. rating we would have ever given a band before. Gosh, because I just, I got so annoyed every time anybody would bring them up i'm like shut up but i wouldn't like show any you know emotion about it i would just be like oh okay cool you know um and i mean there were maybe like 10 second moments total of anything that i'm like okay that's bearable and i've obviously changed (laughs) so um after after listening to that second segment, some people are probably like, man, you probably don't think that way now. Well, yeah, I don't. Um, I listened to the first set and I'm glad I listened to that episode and then the songs and then these songs in that order. And so I'd encourage anybody who is still like not listening to the songs or maybe listen to them is very on the fence and is just listening to this episode. Definitely go through that order and maybe you'll get, you know, what you are hoping to get out of it um and that provided such a good introduction such a good backbone as well as you know my increased appreciation for harsher vocals heavier music combined with this set to 
make me appreciate the fact that like they are good musicians they're not just a bunch of posers they can really back up what they're doing you know that first song is so good they could name it you know sunshine and rainbows and you know unicorns that poop pink polka dots right people equal butterflies and it would still be like such a great song you know um and so i'd say i planned on listening to iowa before this episode i didn't have time i think if i had listened to it i would be able to put myself as as an eight I would wow, do that for, two to an eight to go. To it's go a back. new record. That is a huge record, but I don't know if I sh- can do that yet because I haven't listened to Iowa. Yeah, so I put, seven. Seven. I put myself at a seven. I put myself at a seven, but man, like all of the songs, like all twelve, were like pretty dang good. You know, there there were I would say you know me getting acclimated to Slipknot. There are some moments that I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. I can get used to it. But on the balance, you know, these songs are really good, you know, and I did, I would say like to follow up with The Who, I would say I'm at an eight there now, you know, after listening through Quadrophenia like 10 times, I'd have to say there's nowhere else to put them. And so I can see myself listening through Iowa a couple times and then being like, okay, yeah, they're, they're at an eight for me. But I can also see myself listening through Iowa and being like, oh, this wasn't what I expected. I think I should stay at a seven, maybe move on to one of the later albums that would eventually take me up, you know. And part of part of this episode was kind of just putting away my pride of being like, okay, maybe I was completely wrong in labeling them and giving them a chance. And I was not disappointed. And so I would... I would uh, encourage anybody who would be in that boat to give it a chance. You might still hate it. You might have been right the first time. You know, I can't I can't make you like the band, but I can encourage you my hardest to give it a real chance. And as far as my favorite, there's some definitely some really good songs on here, but it's it's stereotypical to pick the first one, but I got to go with people. People's my favorite. It's yeah, just every moment it doesn't let up. It just woo. It's a really hard song to beat. <laughs> it is yeah, it's just the intensity's hard to beat. That's that's really like that has started to become the uh the gold standard of what a heavy, unrelenting song should be in my brain. You know, and that's kind of that's kind of become uh, subconsciously the one to beat you know in my head of like ooh, can I write something that's heavier than that yeah probably probably not but it's it's a good thing to strive for so yeah anyway that's my final thought so that's a pretty big jump I'm gonna guess that you didn't jump as big because the only way to jump bigger is to go down <laughs> yeah that's true um I I have gone up because they're even though I had gone through their discography before uh, my research, when I was doing these first episodes, cause like our Slipknot episode was like maybe our seventh or eighth episode we ever did. So it was still very early. It was one of the main episodes that really kind of helped push us forward. It's yeah. still like one of the biggest ones we've ever done. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, I definitely have, I would say the biggest thing that has made me grow in appreciation has been appreciating Joey. And that's, and that's what we're here for in this episode, because I have always for a while, always for a while, (laughs) for a while, I have been very vocal about preferring Jay over Joey just because that's more of the style that I personally gravitate towards. I'm, I tend to be less inspired by the more fly by the seat of your pants drummers, but I'm gaining a new appreciation for those types because I'm understanding now the way that they fit in the band, the ones that do it correctly. And I I feel like I understand the DNA of Slipknot a whole lot more now. I understand the things that make them sound the way that they do. And understanding the importance of Joey in those early records. And so I would say that I've probably reached a nine. Like Slipknot has very uh, majorly impacted the last five years of my life musically and that may seem like a lame thing for someone in their late 20s to say because again Mm -hmm. the stereotype is that only you know 15 year old kids that wear all black listen to Slipknot but that's not true and I want that stereotype to disappear because Slipknot is for all people all people that that have these emotions and have some anger towards the world or some anger towards themselves and they need a healthy place to exercise that anger it doesn't matter how old you are or what par- what social group you belong to you can be a maggot and i use that as an endearing term because that's what the that's what slipknot calls their fans and they embrace it proudly um so yeah nine for me while I can say that People is the objectively best song, Eyeless is kind of the one that I just find myself wanting to go back to over and over again. It's the, it's the, one, that, it's the one that just sits in my brain. And so, like, like in our ranked playlist, I ranked People higher, but Eyeless is, is the one that I feel like I just enjoy jamming to. But it was really so I kind of went back I'm, and forth for a little bit. I'm gonna guess that uh, we don't have a par- Harry's pick. No, I did not let him listen to this set. I was, I was about to Although, say. Although I did let him listen to Sulfur because there was no there was no naughty words in it. There's and no I, naughty words or weirdness. Yeah, and I also just gave him some other Slipknot songs that I knew would be appropriate. Like I let him listen to Before I Forget and Psychosocial and uh, Left Behind, uh, Devil and I, and he thinks they're really cool. And so I guess you could say by default, Sulfur is Harry's pick. But his his favorite one overall is Before I Forget. Hey, I mean, that's that's a lot of people's favorite, from what I understand. And then um, there was no way also that 
my wife Callie was going to listen to it because she hates this kind of music. <laughs> but I I told her the names of the songs. She said, "Well, I mean, People has the coolest names. So I'll go with that one." Yes. Woo. <laughs> uh, let's talk about where these fell on the rankings in my ranked playlist. Now, this yeah. was one where I did get to rank every single song, except for, of course, not on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also, because we did, I didn't do this when we did our first episode, I'll also let you know where those ranked as well. Okay. Um, the lowest ranked one at number 25 was Gently. Um, wow. Then at uh, number... Number 16 was Snuff. 13 was Unsainted. At number 11 was Sulphur. 10 was the Heretic Anthem. Pulse of the Maggots at 7. The Devil and I at 6. Left Behind at 5. Eyeless at number 4. Scissors at number 3. People at number 2. And Duality at number 1. Man. So we really... We really, um, even though gently is all the way down at the 25 mark, we really kind of loaded up on the high ranked songs. Yeah, but, we did. And there's, I mean, there's still a lot yeah. in there that we have not touched on. That, that goes to show you, though, how strong of a top 25 they have if number 25 is gently. Yeah. Man. It's a very strong top 25. And very- how. How big is the uh, how big is the list? The list is uh, is ninety five. Oh wow, that's a good ratio. Yeah, and honestly, like, just this is one of the strongest discographies in general that I've ever ranked. So we're gonna have uh, some pretty strong bad music. Yeah. Oh. Really, it's just the last couple songs that will be like, okay, actually, that's not, that's not good. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I hope the listeners are looking forward to that and will check us out on Patreon. Yes. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> so much for listening. Um, if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. We have new episodes uh, every Monday at midnight next week. We, we, we kind of had a rough week a couple weeks ago, so we're going to be honoring another legend next week. Also happened to be one of y'all's uh, fan uh, requests, so it actually, it actually kind of worked out nicely that we were able to do this because someone had already asked us to do it. So um, we're going to be honoring uh, Dusty Hill from ZZ Top. In our next episode, it kind of stinks that we have to constantly do these episodes. But, I mean, two legends literally died back-to-back in subsequent. And it's really high time that we talked about ZZ Top. Indeed. So, um, make sure that you tune in next week for some Texas Blues Boogie. <laughs> and um, make sure to catch us on social media, on on Instagram and Facebook. That's going to be the best place to uh, let us know what artists you want us to cover next. You can also leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, get some-
good reviews as well as that's another great place to uh, let us know your favorite band that you'd like to hear an episode about. There are two links in the description of the episode. One of them will take you to the Spotify playlist. I would highly recommend, even if this is not your style of music, to at least give these songs a try. You never know what might happen. Grant started at a two. Yeah. And jumped quite high up. So you never know something that surprises you. The other link is going to take you to our Patreon page where we will be doing our bad music podcast segment as well as you can get to listen to the episode a couple days early so uh check that out and we will see you guys next week i'm lucas i'm grant keep on listening to good music good music